My father said, um, I'm worried about <clears throat> what kind of Muslim you're going to be. He said, when they come for you, I need to know what kind of Muslim you're going to be. He said, you're going to stand up and be a Muslim or you're going to be a nigger? He said, because if you're going to be a nigger, leave the religion. He said, it can't, you can't, it can't help you if that's the way it's going to. And I thought about that. I still think about that. Man, I'll be pleased with them. I'm like, that's a, that's a devastating conversation. And my father wasn't Muslim. He's talking about the power, positioning, and, 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 and uprightness. When they come for you, what are you going to do? Hmm. Which one are you going to be? I'm standing there, and uh, I'm about to go up. And um, elderly, I know she's Pakistani, Indian lady, like waving. I'm like, oh, my gosh, hey, I got a, I got a. I got an elder, humpty de luck, and I, she's like, come on over. I'm like, oh, maybe she's going to give me a blessing. Do I walk over? I'm like, hey, how you doing? I get a salam. She's just gas a cup like this, and like, she said, get me tea. Your heart must have dropped. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm on fire, man. I'm on lit. And, uh, I'm not in a good space, but I think about what Imam Awad Imam said, and he says sometimes you gotta serve people, whether you like it or not. He said, Islam doesn't mean that you can give it to them when you need to. You can't pick and choose. I'm a strategist. I feel like you're way on my ideas. Okay. Look at the title. Allah made me funny. Allah made me funny was this. Even if you don't like Allah made me funny, you still got to say Allah's name. <laughs> so in the newspapers <laughs> and everything. It's in the newspapers. Come on, bro. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Muslim Centric Podcast. And thank you once again for joining us. My guest today is one of those trailblazers that we can learn so much from. If you're over the age of 30 and a Muslim in the West, then the name of Preacher Moss will bring a smile to your face. I was fortunate to have helped organise his first tour to the UK in 2004 called the Eid Extravaganza, so it was lovely to sit down and reconnect with him nearly 20 years later. Preacher Moss was born Bryant Reginald Moss in Washington DC in the 1960s. He was raised in a Christian family and due to his funny impressions of his church pastor, he was affectionately called Preacher Moss. Comedy was in his bones from an early age and he started studying his craft and refining it in comedy clubs in his teens. In his 20s, he moved, he moved to LA to become a writer and was a writer for Damon Wayans and George Lopez. He had his own stand-up show called End of Racism and he toured hundreds of campuses. The events of 9-11 in 2001 changed everything and he went on to become the founder of Allah Made Me Funny, which was a comedy tour, and he travelled across the whole of the world since 2003. His colleagues included Azar Usman, Azim Muhammad and Muhammad Amr, who have gone on to many mainstream projects. Many people will not be aware that Preacher Moss has a degree in journalism and was a teacher for children with special needs. In this interview, I was struck by how thoughtful and strategic he has been with everything he does. He has clearly made decisions regarding his comedy career which others may consider as missed opportunities but it is obvious that being true to his faith has always been at the forefront of what he does. 
I learned a lot from his experiences of being a black Muslim within the Muslim community in the West. We know there can be racism even amongst Muslims, but I was really affected by the story he tells when he is waiting to perform at a show. It's an issue that we should all take seriously and remedy, as there is no place for racism in Islam. I'm sure you'll love the gems he has chosen to take to the desert island. Shout out also to his interview with Brother Ali, which is worth listening to, and I'll post a link in the show notes. Preaches on all the social media channels, and he has broadcast over 800 episodes of his own shout-out shows. If you're watching on YouTube, excuse the slight mess as we filmed in Preach's hotel room before he performed in Glasgow. He was so gracious with his time despite feeling tired, and I really appreciate the time he took out to spend with me. Just a reminder, if you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts as it helps other people find our content. Inshallah, this will benefit us and others that come to our channel. I've also started a newsletter which you can sign up to via the website where I give some behind-the-scenes context to the interviews. So until next time, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. So Assalamu alaikum, Brother Preacher Moss. Thank well, you so much for joining us. Thanks for, thanks for having me, brother. I appreciate yeah. it. So we're in your hotel room in Glasgow. Um, <laughs> and uh, this is October 2023, and you come up for a comedy tour across the UK. Yes, sir. We are, we're rocking out with the Penny Peel Super Muslim Comedy Tour. Okay. So that's the second year in a row. And how's it been going so far? Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah, man. The audiences have been generous and uh, welcoming. It's just good to see Muslims uh, at this point in time um, in history, if you will, coming out, understanding that you do have to separate tragedy and trauma, and uh, you have to sometimes you have to you have to self love. So uh, seeing people come out and you know they need smiles, yeah, you know they need smiles and uh, just reassurances that uh, not through comedy, just reassurances that we still have community. That can contribute, so that's, that's extremely important. Yeah. And I was just reflecting earlier when we were setting up that you've been to the UK many, many times. Yes, sir. And I think as far back as I think when maybe we first met initially was definitely in two thousand and four. Absolutely, I remember so that first my first trip to Scotland. So about nineteen years, and Masha, you still going? Yeah, I'm hanging in there. <laughs> Fantastic. So. Um, Really privileged to have you on this uh, podcast episode. Um, there's so many questions that I want to ask you, so thank you so much. So I'd love to hear, firstly, a bit about the start. So Preacher Moss from the beginning. So can you tell us a little bit in terms of what do you think would be relevant for people to know about your kind of early childhood that kind of made you the person that you are now? I think my early childhood is, uh, you know, the baseline is really just very, very inquisitive. I uh, had a lot of questions. Uh, framed around uh, existence in America, a lot of questions about racial identity, uh, a lot of questions about religious identity. Um, and they, you know, talking at a pretty pretty young age, man, you used to ask these questions seven, eight years old. Uh, if Christianity is this, then why do I see that? If, if God is just, you know, and these are his people, why do I keep seeing these things? And, you know, at a very young age, man, just extremely empathetic with uh, the condition of people suffering, uh, people who are dealing with oppression, um, <clears throat> and, and seeing uh, the aspects of it. Even if you're middle class or whatever, you, you saw aspects of drugs, you saw aspects of uh, hopelessness. And uh, those are the things that, that, that mattered. 
And you're always in a space like, how can I take what I have skill-wise or talent-wise and, and make a difference? Yeah. And what was that kind of household like? Because um, you were born in D.C., weren't you? Yes, um, in Washington, D.C. And you raised a Christian. Yes. And I was reading that both your parents um, were very kind of active within the black civil rights movement. Yeah, my mom, if uh, you watched March on Washington, they have a, a documentary called Eyes on a Prize. You can see my mom and my aunt in a documentary. My father's sort of like a Black Panther type of guy. I never joined because they never really came to D.C., but he was really about equity uh, for people. And, you know, we, we can talk about how you express it. Uh, but my dad was the guy. It's like, you, you're not going to disrespect me yeah. uh, as a man. You're not going to disrespect me as, as a man of color. Yeah. And uh, extremely fervent about that. When I think about it, you know, um, literally, he defended a lot of people. Uh, he defended a lot of people. And I think about it, it's like, you think all black people. Like, he defended a lot of white people, too, who were in a space. And it was like, it just wasn't right. And, uh, you know, I, I can respect that, you know. Yeah. I, mean, I, I have a, a much deeper appreciation for my father uh, now that I'm older um, than what I had before. It was it was a deep appreciation. Yeah. Then it was like, you know, there's a whole other layer to that. And until you're in that space, you don't really understand yeah. what that layer is. And is it true that your mo mother met Martin Luther King? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. My mother's from Danville, Virginia. She met him in the early marches. Okay. Yeah. And so was there was that kind of very present for you growing up with the idea of civil rights, that justice for black people as a, as a it young, was young boy? Young, well, I was in a, I was in integration years, so you had forced integration, you had busing. So you were going to schools where the white kids didn't want you and the white teachers didn't really particularly care for you. Can you paint a picture of what that, because a lot of young people that might be listening, people that are not brought up in America, what well, was it like? Well, you had segregated schools. Yeah. You had segregated schools. Um, and then even when the law changed, you had schools that were predominantly black and they weren't, uh, they didn't have access to, to, to good resources. So the education was um, imbalanced. And so the idea is, well, we'll just send these kids to white schools. Hmm. And so you had the uh, the cultural baggage for a lot of young black kids. That I'm still trying to figure out what it is to be black. I'm trying to figure out is you know, be a kid. And now you're taking on all this racial baggage to a school. And there you are. And uh, I can tell you what my early years were. Elementary school, I, I think I damn near fought every day. Really? <laughs> Yeah. With what? With white kids? Absolutely. <laughs> because what they would call you names or okay, they didn't see us as people. Mm -hmm. You know, you get off a bus, they walk to school. Get off a bus, and we were the first, I'm not first black family in the neighborhood. We were the first dark skinned black family. Right. So you weren't mixed with anything, and um, the light skinned kids. You know, they like we call them light, bright, damn near white. Um, they could pass, I couldn't pass. And uh, with my father being who he was, and it's like, dude, I, I got horror stories just from correcting teachers, right? You know, correcting teachers and teachers, you know, I, you're wrong. I'm like, no, this, these are the facts, these are, but you know, you're young and you're black, and it's like, you, you don't matter. But were you, did, do you think that affected you? Or were you were you kind of somebody who, 
just fought against that or were you somebody that was quite no if i hurt yeah, by no, that? no 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 it was it, it fired you up you know i talk about this school but there was a teacher my sixth grade teacher my fifth grade teacher was amazing miss prather uh but my sixth grade teacher was she was the the the, the og teacher african-american woman her name was uh, miss elvita jones and she was from she was from the old uh, color uh, colored teachers college, and in that mantra, they were like, "We're framing minds for the future. We need these kids to be successful, so you know they could pave the future for us." And uh, I, I still uh, give thanks to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala for her because she framed that thinking, the fury, that rage, and it's like, "Yo, there's something in here called intelligence, and you're gonna you're gonna harness it." Or I'm gonna beat you down, and um, she she fashioned us in sixth grade. She fashioned me particularly to be a critical thinker. And they were talking the 1970s. You're talking, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. She fashioned me to be a critical thinker, yeah. and um, that pretty much belies everything I've been doing moving forward. Um, everything from Allah made me funny. Allah made me funny is not a. It, People, oh, it was a comedy tour. No, it was, it was a strategic response to Islamophobia. Yeah. And uh, it was a curriculum. I was a school teacher. People forgot that. Yeah. And it's like, how do you deal with people who uh, don't think? We have, you have to reteach them how to learn. Yeah. And that was Muslims and non-Muslims. You know, yeah. some of even now, you know, I, we, I love our community, but sometimes we get in our own way. Yeah. We're still hawking Islamophobia. I'm like... They're not busting through our windows. They're not coming up in our houses. It's not that. You know, don't don't hyper-visualize this thing. So if you know that the boogeyman is not the boogeyman that has been out there, then you have a duty. You have a duty, responsibility to go up. You know what? I could be aggressively uh, aware and aggressively uh, present for what I believe. Yeah. And that's when you start teaching the kids, you know what? You know, somebody says, get out of here. You ain't got to vacate the permits. <laughs> mm. What if I don't? Yeah. <laughs> what if I stay? Hey, Ted, what if I bring three, four more people? And then it becomes this whole different uh, dichotomy and relationship. And that's what it was. And learning to fight back then. You know, learning to fight. And it wasn't just learning to fight. It was like, we're all in the same boat. So lunchtime was strategy time. I'm going to fight so-and-so. You're going to fight so-and-so because that's where we were as kids. Forget education. Yeah. It was about existence. And I guess that, I mean, do you think things are much better all these decades later? We'd obviously know we're lazy. in recent years. We're, no, we're lazy. We're lazy. We are extremely lazy. We're lazy. Social media, internet, da-da-da. We're looking at everybody else's lives on their phones. and think. We're not thinkers, man. We're not turning out critical thinkers we now have something called ai ai helps you not think i'm like this is great it helps you not think so literally i go to the process now i have to unplug man don't call me don't yeah you get back to write a letter to somebody <laughs> yeah you got to get back to writing a letter can you write a letter to somebody yeah put a stamp on it and send it out you know and here's a test that ai doesn't work AI can't visit the elderly. Yeah. Like, the elderly don't understand AI. AI doesn't understand the elderly. 
it can't take that information because they haven't been putting that information into a wellspring of computers and data and stuff like that. You know, the elderly say, hey, man, if you know, you know. If you don't know, you don't know. And I'm like, thank God we have the elderly. <laughs> so people are getting left behind, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Do you think the situation for black people has improved over these decades? So you're talking about the 70s um, and then, you know, fast forward to we had a black president and you know then we have black lives matter with george floyd yeah. and these, i mean are we still what's, still what's your reflections of situation of black the, people the, in america you said black people the condition the condition of black people has only improved because it's improved the condition of other people what do you mean um they, there's a saying that says uh you know the tide lifts all the boats and that is black awareness, uh, black empathy, black education, black uh, intellectualism, intellectual capacity. You know, these are things that culturally that have been addressed. You know, if you if you think about it, uh, in a hundred years, less than a hundred years after uh, the Emancipation Proclamation in eighteen sixty three, right? You have a culture of Africans that leave the plantation, some stay, still have to stay on a plantation. They're illiterate. Uh, they're not well financed. Um, you know, everything is anti-business against them. But in a hundred years, they managed to produce schools, businesses, education, intellectual capacity that can actually argue laws, argue against the laws that, that oppress them, argue against the laws that oppress all the other people. You know what I mean? In a hundred years, hmm. nobody's done that in the United States. You look around the world; it's like nobody's really done that. So, you know, it's not tooting a horn, but I'm like, you know, they say invention is mother necessity. Uh, you're looking at a spiritual thing, and that's not even to get into the whole aspect of what the Black Church has done, inclusive of Islam, which has had a shorter time period. In the United States, in terms of gestation and what it's done since 1920, so you begin to uh, look at that, and you know everybody wants to be with a winner. You know, I won't say a winner, but everybody wants to be with progress or things that. So you begin to see what that is. So the African American has, in many regards, you're the you know you're the you're the canary in, in in the coal mine. It's just that canary keeps coming out. And everybody goes, wow, the canary keeps coming out. I can go in. And so um, that's kind of where we are now. Uh, Barack Obama being president, uh, if you're old school, it's like, yeah, that's wonderful. But you're still a politician. You still got to deal with them old dudes up in that hill, uh, old dudes up in that Senate. And you got to deal with a system that has predated you for years. It hasn't just kept black people down. It's kept white people down. It's kept poor people down. You know, you're going to change that in eight years. You're not going to change it in eight years. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm a pessimist, but I'm a realist. And that is the thing we say I have to separate from the system, find out something that I can work on organically that can lift all of us up. Okay. And just going back to that kind of those roots when you're growing up, mm-hmm. um, and you've talked about your experiences, what about... I mean, obviously you're known as a comedian, but obviously clearly you're a thinker and you're somebody who's, you know, has that ability for that critical thinking. Were this, was the evidence of that when you were younger? Were you quite funny? Were you a 
critical thinker? Did you challenge the system? I was a funny, I was a funny kid. Um, I watched my father be funny. And his funny was different. Um, his funny was funny, but his funny had rage to it. Like, I knew what my dad was going through. And he still managed to bring home the smiles. He didn't bring home the rage. I seen the rage, but he brought home the smiles. And he was like, I need you to understand that. Uh, and I've really never really talked about this before. My father taught me you have to learn how to laugh. He said, because you're going to get in situations where people will kill you. People will kill you. People will physically harm you for your ideas. Hmm. That you've got to be able to turn something that's right here and, and flip it around and twist it a little bit so that you're still going to get the idea out. But to that person over there, it, it misses them. You know, it, mis- it, mis- it misleads them, if you will. Yeah, but, you know, man, come on, bro. We, we, we evolved from the black codes, man. There's no rap music without the black codes. You know the black codes? No, tell us about that. Oh, they had a, um, they had a, they had the uh, John Brown. They had the John Brown Rebellion. John Brown, a white guy, led a rebellion, killed a bunch of white folks, and it resulted in the separation of Virginia into West Virginia, Virginia. So they had a black code thing. The black codes were the slaves were not allowed to talk, but they weren't allowed to uh, speak at the same time. So they had to come up with chants and things like that to keep the overseers and and the owners, you know, uh, keep them calm. So they felt good. So you just couldn't talk. You'd be like, "Hey, I was down south and da 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 da," and that singing uh, made the owners like, "I was downtown that last week. I'm got I got tired feet." And they think it was entertainment, yeah. you know, and that becomes the codes. <clears throat> so now what was meant to be restrictive is now creative language for people. Yeah. Okay. And it evolved into the blues. It evolved into R&B and it evolved into rap. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's fascinating, that whole history and that kind of evolution. Um, I mean, do you think your comedy was also a bit of a, self-defense and a defense mechanism did it get you out of tricky situations were you able to because if you can use humor to diffuse something sure then i guess that becomes a really useful tool you can use it to diffuse things but you can also use to uh, challenge things uh my mentor um a lot of people use with him dick gregory stood in front of white americans and said this is what black people think of you this is what the oppressed people think of you and he sat and delivered. He didn't shuck and jive. He didn't sing. He didn't do that. He was ten toes down and in a suit. You know, in a suit, bro. If you understand the history of um, black entertainers, um, for many years, black entertainers, they were like groups. They were like pairs, and they would talk to each other. And a white audience, would, they couldn't talk directly to a white audience. Is what I'm saying. So they would talk to the other white artists for watching. That was the fun part. And, you know, it would be demeaning. He had blackface and things like that. But Dick Gregory comes. He's, he's not blackface. He's telling them the truth. Everything about Vietnam to, to smoking to the government to corruption. And, you know, he's ten toes down, man. And that's the guy. Like, that's the guy before Pryor. Yeah. That's the guy before Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby wanted to be Dick Gregory. Yeah. 
you know, that's the guy, you know, and he was, he was original G, man. Yeah. yeah. And that's what, uh, he passed away recently, didn't he? And a couple of years yeah, ago, yeah. yeah. A lot of people would pay tribute to him because he was so significant. I did. Yeah. I went to his funeral. Okay. I went to his homecoming because I, 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 I owed him. Yeah. I owed him. There's no Allah made me funny without Dick Gregory. Okay. And we'll come on to come on to some of that. Yes, sir. Um, so, we, this is called the Desert Island Gems. Yes. Show and so, um, I want you to imagine we're going to cast you away to a desert island. Okay. And we'll maybe come back to some of these gems that you'll yeah, take. It with feels you. like Long Island, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm sorry, bro. <laughs> so for your first, um, yes, sir. For, what's your first gem that you would take that would that is significant to you that would has been an important part of your life what was the first gem you would take i got a bunch of them not in any particular order i love this one from uh arthur schopenheimer it says uh talent is the ability to hit the target other people can't hit but genius is the ability to hit the target that people can't see and explain that or elaborate why that's so meaningful for you um think the idea like I'm a, I'm I'm a huge disciple of deliberate practice and that you know you can practice for situations and scenarios but sometimes you're going to go out on a limb and it's away from what everybody else sees and sometimes I would talk to people about things I was seeing but it was 2 3 years in the future like all it made me funny was 2 3 years in the future in 2001 I'm like I'm thinking of this but then and I'm, you're talking to it like you're seeing it right then, but people are like, "What are you talking about? Can't you see right then?" And it's like, and that's the separation, <clears throat> and people can't see it till it happens. So in two th- two thousand three, it happens. Like, yo, what is this all about? But I've been talking about it for two years. I've had counsel on it for two years. I've had the uh, I had the counsel and good and, and good guidance of uh, Imam Warthin Muhammad, Imam Warthin Muhammad, may Allah be pleased with them. Several brothers from the nation. I went and did my historical backup. How did you guys handle it in the fifties and the sixties? What did you do? How did you how did you build coalitions? I'm trying to build it with comedy. You guys build it with religion. And they were like, You're still building with religion, but you know, it's a different thing, it's a different art form. And I never forget Imam Walter Muhammad told me, he said, You're never gonna be a master comedian. You're never going to be funny enough, he says, because your job is to be a master teacher. Hmm. So the comedy becomes the tool. That's right. And that is being able to hit the target nobody else could see. Because I, yeah. I couldn't see it. Because yeah. he told me, this is a great idea. All of me be funny. He said, but don't start it in a black neighborhood. Don't start it in a black Muslim community. Start it in an immigrant Muslim community. He said, because they, they don't see us. They don't understand our language. They don't understand our history. We have a divide. He's a goal. Now imagine if somebody's telling you this 20-some years ago. Right? 20-some years ago, somebody's telling you this. And the idea was, you know, hitting a target nobody else could see. But he said, because the future is the kids. The future is the kids. The future is me and you in a room in Glasgow. Me and you, and I'm from D.C. You're from Glasgow. 20 years, you're talking about 20 years ago when you first met me. 20 years ago, we're having this conversation. I'm like, that's the target that people can't see. Yeah, That is why, you know, this dean isn't going to go anyplace. That's why people can't squash this out. They can't see it. You know, and I'm talking about, yeah, it seems like really in the metaphysical and ephemeral. No, this is real. 
This is 100% real. And so let's talk a bit, because uh, I was really keen to hear about Allah being me funny. Yes. And I think it's important we put it into context a wee bit. So um, I think it launches in about 2003, doesn't it? Yeah, and it's a so, solo. It's a solo thing in 2003. Is it? And so... you. Obviously, nine eleven happens two thousand and one, right? And then, you know, this comedy tour really made me funny, and then it, it evolved to you and well, let's let's, let's 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 fill in the blanks. Nine eleven happens. Let's be honest: the African American Muslim community was on the sidelines. We did not know if we really wanted to get into this space with our immigrant brothers and sisters because they weren't coming for us. And two things that happened: there was a lot of reticence because. African-American Muslims, African-Americans have been suffering, and, and we watched a lot of our immigrant brothers and sisters on the sideline. Uh, like we used to say, y'all want to be white. Well, here's your chance to be black in America right here, right now. And the question is like, well, we're okay. We're safe. It would have been easier for us to go, there's us and then there's them. You want them. But the imam put in my face... Um, Makasad al Sharia, the purposes of Sharia. And he said, if it's applicable to us, it's applicable to them. He said, even if you're not getting the relationship, even if you're, he said, that's, it's not about the relationship. If you believe what they believe and we believe, he said, then you have a duty. And that was a step up. And so the comedy at that point in time becomes religious work that now. If I was a, a, a sharpshooter, I would show up with a gun. Or if I was a guy who had data intelligence, I'd show up with that. But I was a comedian. And I showed up with comedy and I showed up with education. I was an educator. Yeah. And uh, that was the thing that makes... Because all that made me funny, I, I wish I had the notes. It's a curriculum. I wrote out a curriculum. Yeah, you know, I don't know if you know, I used to be a special ed teacher. I taught severely most disturbed kids. And uh, part of that, you have to write out what's called an IEP, an Individualized Education Program for each student on top of their regular education. There's no one more severely most deserved than Islamophobe. <laughs> it's, it's shooting fish <laughs> in a barrel. Yeah. So the comedy becomes very aggressive. It becomes very protest. It becomes very 60s. It becomes... What are you going to do? We put it in your face. You're not going to have a chance to come up with a formula. Nobody wants to mess with a comedian when they got the microphone and you don't have a microphone. We just took it to another level whereby we visualize you don't have a microphone. So when you read about this tour in the newspaper, you don't have a microphone. Or you hear about it on the radio, you don't have a microphone. Or when you see it live, you don't have a microphone. And it's like we can take the power back. And the power is really the people coming out to see the show because we give them an opportunity to self-validate, to self-ratify, to, to self-communalize what it is they feel. And it's like you're not feeling awkward. You're not feeling, uh, oh, they're coming to get us. You're not feeling that. And you said you, you planned it all out. I mean, what was the main objective or objectives you wanted I'm a strategist. I feel like you're way on my ideas. Okay. Look at the title. Allah made me funny. Allah made me funny was this. Even if you don't like Allah made me funny, you still got to say Allah's name. 
So in the newspapers <laughs> and everything. It's in the newspapers. Come on, bro. I'm like, I'm, I'm an old school journalist. I'm like, you're going to eat this. I don't like Allah made me funny. But you just said Allah. It's it cool. It's six Muslims that like Allah. It's ten Muslims I like a lot. I read this thing. Or you heard the interview. Or you saw the podcast. I'm like, I've been doing this for a long time. I told you I was a fighter when I was young. I wasn't a big dude. I'm not going to lie. Like, I won every fight. But I, I strategize. Because I was, when I was doing a bit of research, obviously seeing you were in a lot of interviews, a lot of kind of mainstream news clips at, at that time. Mm-hmm. They're saying, you know, Preacher Moss, founder of Allah, made me funny. So, oh, but, yeah. But why was that? Take it the next step. Why was important people were saying Allah even at that Look, man, level. I'm, I'm old school, man. Yeah, you know, I always said, the one thing the Muslim community could probably use is a good PR, a uh, good Jewish PR guy. And I found one. <laughs> <laughs> and I found Actually, one. I'm like, I'm like, he's just about the money. Here's money, baby. Do what you do. And he went out and he got us great press. And listen, man, there was really no tour. 2003, I went a year talking about Allah made me funny. We didn't have anybody on the tour. You know, we didn't have a date. You know, Allah, uh, Azim Muhammad was my first guy. And I went with Azim. And I'm telling you why, because Azim was from the Nation of Islam. And I was like, I got to have these brothers yeah. at my back. Uh, Azurzman came second uh, because the Imam said, expand it. He said, so you, gotta, you can't just keep it over here. He said, we won't win. We'll win, but we won't win. He said, go over here. He said, and I remember I remember talking to him about like, yo, man, if I got to go over here, it's like, I'm a comedian. I'm like, that's like starting over. And the old man looked me in the face. He goes, well, are you funny or not? And you take that one to the chin. I'm like, Jesus, this guy. You talking about hitting a target you can't see? I'm like, this dude's killing me. But I'm like, I, I, I believe, because I talk about it myself. I was like, this guy, he's from the beginning. He's from the first. This is Elijah Muhammad's son. Somehow he's seen this thing, and I, I've, I've got the blessing. I don't have a whole lot of conversations with him. I can tell you, if you took all of our conversations, it might equal 37 minutes. Really? So were you a follower of that community, or was it just somebody you had conversations with? I grew up around, the nation. I grew up around the nation of Islam, okay. and, and I, I advocate. I love those brothers. Um. Islam in America is not probably Islam in the world if you don't have these brothers living it. I always joke. I said, you know, you need to learn how to uh, act like the Nation of Islam brothers. They've been scaring uh, white folks in America for 100 years and uh, never went to jail. (laughs) (laughs) But there's a reason. And it's a very serious reason. The whole idea of Islam in the African-American community is it grows up under the most grotesque, the most oppressed situations. So you have no protection of law. You have no religious stuff. You're not seen as a person. But with this religion, people have reframed value. And it's really a, a, you know, it's really a movement from the sisters. The sisters really built the nation of Islam. But they are figuring out under all the aspects of white supremacy, uh, male patriarchy, they're trying to figure out how do we build community. Listen, um, marriages between African Americans are really only legally recognized in the late 1800s. 
So you have to say, what was family before that? You know, through slavery, what was family before that? So, you know, like I talked about the evolution and something happening quickly, and that's it. Uh, and the arts, the arts become something in the 1920s. You know, the, the Ahmadiyyas come to Philadelphia and present Islam, but, you know, it kind of gets rejected. It's like, yo, we got racism going on here. Yeah. And it becomes the Lost Found, uh, the Lost Found Nation, Noble Drew Ali, uh, Marcus Garvey, the Nation of Islam. It becomes that. You know, they say Islam is going to meet you where you are. Prime example. And then you start looking at how it affects, you know, and, and no knock. You know, you look at everything on TV right now with Palestine and Israel. There's an absence of black faces. There's an absence of black opinion. Because if you ask me, I'm going to give you a holistic picture of how this thing really, really looks. And uh, we can go deeper into it, man. I mean, that's probably yeah. one of my gems. Um, talking about Palestine, people are like, what are you about? I'm like, I don't know if you're really ready to hear me tell, give you the, the, the truth, the hawk about Palestine, because it might hurt your feelings. Mm. But I think it needs to be hurt. Okay, go ahead. We'll come on to that. So, um, tell us about your second gem. My second gem is um, when I took my shahada. Um, old guy took me to the side of the masjid, opened the door, and he goes, uh, "Come here." And I'm like, "Okay, you know you, because now it's like magic. You just took your shahada, like everything is magic." And he takes me inside the door. He goes, uh, "Let me help you out. Your new shahada. You you just took it. Yeah, I'm a new convert." He says, "Look out in the parking lot." And I look out in the parking lot. And he goes, "Um, <clears throat> do you see any burning bushes?" I'm like, "Sir." He goes, "Do you see any burning bushes?" I go, "No." He goes. And there won't be any. He goes, Islam is work. <laughs> that was your introduction. He goes, that was my entry. He goes, Islam is work. I'm like, this old dude just totally ruined every flowery thing. But I needed it. Yeah. Islam is work. And he was like, you ain't going to put in the work. This is going to be a dead religion to you. Mm. So if, if your heart didn't change when you walk past somebody who's hungry... Yeah, this religion ain't ain't for you, and uh, and that really comes out of the whole communal base of like the nation of Islam and the evolution, and you know th those are the things. It's really really funny, man. Um, it's really really funny when I think about it, because that you know for all the different factions, Sufism, da 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 da, I still remember that old man. Yeah, sticks with you. No, look, no, he's no scholar. He's no. Yeah. <laughs> you see any burning bushes? <laughs> no, sir. And it won't be any. Islam is work. I'm like, what kind of wisdom are you? What kind of gin have you swallowed, bro? Because you're killing me in the game. But I remember, though. Yeah. That's over 30 years ago. Yeah, gosh. So let's just rewind. Just, I guess, you becoming a Muslim and taking the Shahada. So um, I think that was about 1988 when you're about 20. A little later. Like yeah, right yeah. around 88. Yeah. I, had that, I had a period. We call it a journey. A journey. Um because again you can correct me if, if i'm wrong so um i think you started you know doing the comedy clubs when you're around 20 around that age and then no i started when i was 17 17 okay i was too young for the comedy clubs that's okay. how i wound up in the jazz clubs okay yeah 
And then, so what led to that conversion? What was the kind of the... Well, I had always had exposure to the Nation of Islam. But in the jazz scene, a lot of people don't realize that Islam came to America through a lot of jazz musicians, African-American jazz musicians. So I was around guys. You may have a guy that shot heroin over here, but you had another guy that's like, he did nothing. Uh, he called his wife. He drank. You know, he drank juice. You know, he, he fasted. What's that all about? Well, this is Islam, brother. What? You know, and that grows on you. And then, you know, it's juxtaposition right against the crack wars in uh, that started in like 1984, 1985 in D.C. So at 17 years old, you're seeing guys that are going off to prison, guys are being killed. And now you have this full rush on about what's life about? Like, you know, normally you have a space of I'm going to plan my life out. I'm like, no, I could walk out of here. And the situation be what it is, and I may not, I may not come home. And I had a lot of brothers who who did that, or one of which who was changed his life around, and he was murdered. And uh, you know, um, he was on his way. Like Islam, it kind of turned him around. And we were like, well, "How did you change? You know, why is that different?" And I think it was, you know, I, I needed that, but I had examples around me always. Around me. So, your interaction with other Muslims in in that scene, or you know what the funny part was when I was in or? when I was in college, we had international Muslims. Okay. So from other countries, and I'm like, you ain't like the Muslims I know back home. You know, they were very, they were nice, they were docile, but you know, I, I was used to the, you know, you know, I need to talk to you, young brother. I needed that. Yeah. You know. So why? Let, why, let why, me tell you about the black man, young sir. I needed that. So why not go towards the nation then? Why? Now, this is a true story. I was supposed to go to the nation. I should have gone to the nation. I was set up to go to the nation. The brother I was dealing with was kind of like, yo, you know, and he tells me, you know, you need to go down to New Jersey Avenue. And uh, I'm, lack of history, I just go down to New Jersey Avenue. I'm thinking that's the Where's this? Muhammad in Washington, D.C. I'm thinking that's Muhammad's Mosque number four. So this is a nation of Islam, a black Muslim telling you. Yeah, go yeah, to that yeah, temple. yeah. Okay. But it turned out he'd been locked up for a while. He wasn't active. Okay. So I went to Muhammad's Mosque, what I thought was Muhammad's Mosque number four, but it's now Masjid Muhammad. Okay. So I walk in and I'm thinking I'm going to see bow ties and all of that. On a Friday, and I don't see the bow ties. I'm thinking maybe it's casual Friday. Um, yo, man, and they were like, I'm like, I'm here to learn about Islam. And, then, you know, I had the fire, but they like, you know, they were like, you need to come on in. And I think I'm still, I'm a hybrid because I still, the fire, you know, I, I have the, the fire. I have a Sunni Akita, but I have the NOI fire. Hmm. and uh, <clears throat> have never let it go. So, yeah, I, I, I go to join the Nation of Islam, uh, but I'm 13 years late at this mosque. <laughs> they had already, they had switched over in 76. I showed up in, like, so 1989. You, so you thought you were going to a Nation of Islam I thought mosque, I was going to be in a Nation of Islam. Turned I, into a Sunni mosque. Dude, I shaved all my facial hair. I'm trimming. <laughs> I know I'm going to be... A dude, I'm like, I'm going to look good. When... And the funny part, I I got into military school for six years, so I knew I looked good in uniform, you know? I was going to have the WFM thing and the hat. And, and 
When no did hat. You realize, when did you realize? <laughs> I kind of realized when um, they were talking about Shahada, but it wasn't like, I'm not going to send a letter to the ministry, you know, like you, to get your ex. Which ex number you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought I was going to, you know, preach your ex one, you know, preach your ex. And uh, it doesn't. But then what happens is they introduce you to the Quran. And so the Quran gives you this very, very uh, different type of alignment in terms of narrative. And it's like, okay, you're bigger than your color. Uh, you're bigger than your color and you're bigger than your calling that you think you have. And that becomes what we say, you know, that the, the target, hitting the target nobody else can see. That's Islam. That's what it does for people because people can't see uh, where this religion is going to take them. You know, you can think, you can think as much as you want to, but you can't see it. And that is the whole idea of understanding that there's a, there's, there's a creative power, that there's something that's bigger that's directing you and to hit that thing that people can't see, you have to have that connection. And how long was that period from starting to take an interest in Islam to taking Shahada? Wow, man. Was that a long um, journey or was it quite quick? He's talking about from 14 years old. Right. I'm about 14 years old. Uh, I read the autobiography of uh, Malcolm X when I was young. My father had it. And uh, it had always been the thing about how how do you go from this guy to this guy? How do you go from here to there? No dope. You know, they put you in prison. You know, they strip you down. They, this prison is a, a prescription for failure. How do you not take the prescription for failure, come out and be productive? And like I said, you don't have the recourse of law. Uh, the nation's land was not a nonprofit or charity. Uh, people... I grew up where if somebody was hungry, we didn't have fundraisers. You took them food. Uh, people passed away. You took them food because the, the the weight of a funeral, you didn't want them to worry about eating. And if you had to take up a collection, you take up your hat. And, and this is what you did. And, and it wasn't talked about. This is just what it was, burying people and, and, and getting kids to go to school and, you know, things like that. We understood poverty, but poverty was a, a collective identity. So if somebody was poor, that person wasn't poor. We were poor. Yeah. And what? How? What was the reaction of your family when they found out that you were learning about Islam or you became a Muslim? I could have done a better job about telling my mother and my father. Um, <clears throat> but my father, you know, my father had been around Muslims, and uh, I, I, I've been saying this uh, recently. Uh, with the whole thing with Palestine and uh, Israel. And uh, I remember the one conversation that we had about um, Islam. Very short, very brief, very succinct. And uh, he was like, so I was like, Pops, are you okay with me being Muslim? And he looks at me, he goes, he goes, I don't have a problem with you being Muslim. He goes, I'm going to tell you to your face. He goes, I'm worried, though. I'm, what you worried about? He said, I'm worried. He said, I see what Islam has done for Guys in my generation, you know, Elijah Muhammad, Muhammad Ali, uh, Malcolm X, you know, folks like that. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad, Mr. Louis Farrakhan. My father said, um, I'm worried about <clears throat> what kind of Muslim you're going to be. He said, when they come for you, I need to know what kind of Muslim you're going to be. He said, you're going to stand up being a Muslim or you're going to be a nigger? Hmm. He said, because if you're going to be a nigger, leave the religion. 
He said, it can't, you can't, it can't help you if that's the way it's going to. And I thought about that. I still think about that, man. A lot of be pleased with them. I'm like, that's a, that's a devastating conversation. And my father wasn't Muslim. He's talking about the power, positioning, and, 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 and uprightness. When they come for you, what are you going to do? Hmm. Which one are you going to be? What's your values? What's your principles? Which one are you going to be? Yeah. This is a longer, larger conversation yeah. about Palestine and, and, and the United States and Israel. Because I got a really dope thing that people don't want to hear, but it's going to come out anyway. Hmm. I said, because you know what you see is people attempting to do what my father said. They're, temp they're attempting to make you into that person or make you somehow assume the identity of that person. As he said, you're going to be this, you're going to be that. He said, because if you're going to be that, I don't want nothing to do with you. Think about that. Your father's telling you, I don't want nothing to do with you. If you're going to be that kind of Muslim, forget it. But it sounds like you was making sure you were, you know, you were doing things for the right reason. My father was clear. You can take on Islam. He said, but you're taking on Islam in the United States. He said, when they, when they come for you, they come to strip a black man down. Whether they put you in prison, whether they kill you, they come to strip you down. I need to know, son, when they come for you, and they will come for you, and they have come for me numerous times, I need to know what you're going to be. Yeah. To made you think. What about your mom? What was her? My mother was, uh, you know, she was a little hurt. You know, Christianity was her religion. She was Southern Baptist. Um, but she began to understand that it was evolution. I'm like... I said, well, it's for the best. I said, for, it's for the good of all of us. I said, I got to reevaluate how I treat you as a mother, because uh, I'm reading things. I gotta, I gotta make sure that you're okay. I can't go a week without talking to you. You know, I need to reach out to grandma and the aunts and and the matri matriarchs of the family, make sure that they're okay. And my mother's like, really? I said, yeah. And and, and my treatment of my mother over the last thirty some plus years has reflected that. And you know. She's the one, like, did you pray? Uh, are you fasting? Did you break your fast? Salam alaikum, mama. Why alaikum assalam? baby. And it's that, you know, yeah. because she was the one who ironically creates this culture for me to be this evolving Muslim. Because I'm not worried about whether she likes it or not. She's like, you know, this religion is important. She is the flip side of what my dad said. So it's, it's very, very important. It's balance, yeah. Yeah. One thing that I'm always mindful of is the experience of people within Islam when they become Muslims. And I think it's, um, people don't like talking about it, but I guess I'm very mindful of mm -hmm. kind of racism within Islam. Sure. Like we're the sure. first ones to say, yep. you know, um, from the, what everything the Prophet peace be upon has, has taught us, and that what Islam teaches about equality, um, and it's, you know what differentiates us is piety. But we know the reality mm -hmm. is very different. I mean, most of us in the UK have come from South Asia, so Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, etc. Yes, uh, most Muslims here are that kind of demographics. Although it's changing over the last few years, in America is very different. Um, the other thing is obviously you've married a Indian Muslim as well. Yeah. 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 So what do we need to know? What do I need to know as somebody who's a South Asian of the experience black people, black Muslims have within that Islamic comes, That comes, that comes to our next gym. 
The next gym is sometimes you got to serve the tea. Sometimes you got to serve the tea. What does that mean? Wow. Early, early, early on, before Allah made me funny when I was in the, the, the uh, promoting stage, before we actually had a tour, actually had a show, I was with others mine in New Jersey. And I went to New Jersey to kind of, you know, they hired him, and but I was going to do a guest set to kind of introduce myself to these people, and listen to me to these people, to my, my Muslim brothers and sisters I had nothing to do with, and they didn't have nothing to do with me. And um, I'm looking for any kind of just positive interaction because I'm standing off in the corner. Nobody's talking to me. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So I'm standing there and uh, I'm about to go up. And um, elderly, I know she's Pakistani Indian lady, like waving. I'm like, oh my gosh, hey, I got a, I got a, I got an elder Humpty de luck. And I, she's like, come on over. I'm like, oh, maybe she's going to give me a blessing. Do I walk over? I'm like, hey, how you doing? I get a salam. She's just gas a cup like this and like, she's like, get me tea. Your heart must have dropped. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm on fire, man. I'm on lit. And, uh, I'm not in a good space, but I think about what Imam what Imam said, and he says sometimes you gotta serve people, whether you like it or not. He said, Islam doesn't mean that you can give it to them when you need to. You can't pick and choose. And I'm looking at this lady with her teeth, and she's wiggling at me. That's what got me pissed. Like, hey, give me money. And I went. Found the tea thing, poured the tea, da da da, and I got show. You know, they called me up and I went up, and I did my show. And she was looking at me like, "What are you doing? You know, bring me more tea." I was like, "Why is the waiter on the yeah, stage?" Yeah, and I'm like, "She still don't get it." I'm like, "No, you only get tea once. Yeah, one per Negro. You only getting tea." But what if I go off at this early juncture of all I mean, what if I cuss this lady out? What if I snap in front of all these people? Even if that's the mindset or what it, what it is, somewhere, somehow, it's like the old man. Ain't going to be no burning bushes. Mm. Islam is work. And sometimes you got to serve the tea. Yeah. yeah. And was that, all, I guess, that was that also one of the strategic objectives of Allah Made Me Funny is to well, get the black people, black Muslims. We were fractured. You know, we keep talking about Islamophobia and stuff like that, 9-11. If the people who were really, really astute and enemies of the Islamic community, if they're really astute, they would have realized that the two biggest communities were fractured. So, I love me funny is on the outside, yes, we're trying to deal with Muslim image, but in the end, on an infrastructure, infrastructure type of deal, it's like, we got to get our act together. Like, we're sitting ducks. It doesn't take a whole lot when we're just fractured. We're not standing together. You know, we're not connecting. You know, we're, we're distanced. We're fragmented. And I'm like, and the, the issue is like time. It's like, it's going to become a time where this thing is going to be really, really, really clear. And if we don't have anything in the interstitial to say that we can get together, 
you know, we had separate conferences. You know, we have history of just separate conferences. We have history of, you know, remember, you know, they used to do the uh, Memorial uh, Labor Day conference in Chicago, and they gave it up to ISNA, uh, Islamic Society of North America. They gave it up to ISNA. And it's it's like, okay, thanks, bye. We've never really come back. Let's do it together. And I'm like, this is is what that reticence is. So you got, it's like, why should we help? Yeah. We we know the way that this government works. Yeah. If you don't want to listen, you want to, you, you want to go through a learning curve unnecessarily, go, go have at it. That must be incredibly painful and disheartening to be, if you're Muslim is black I guess you're fighting the racism from the white people. Yeah. And then also fighting your Muslim brothers, you know, who are probably from different backgrounds and subcontinent. Yeah, and like you're, Arabs, yeah. I don't have Muslim. brothers like, you don't, you know, you're not bring, you know, you're the convert. And I'm like, dude, first of all. It's that hierarchy. It's like, please get a guy to talk to me. And say, you're, you're the convert. I'm like, please, dude, don't get, where's English, dude? You know, I'll take it from English, dude. You're not, yeah, you're a convert. I'm like, but here's the deal, and this is this is probably what hurts the most. For African Americans, Islam has to work. It has to work. We don't have a plan B. We can't go back to Pakistan or India, or Bangladesh or whatever. It has to work. And the immediacy and the urgency of it has of it having to work is the thing that's made it work. Like it's in the community. It is, you know what? It's not 100%, but damn, it's effective. That, yo, that problem on the corner, we're going to deal with that problem. If it's drugs on the corner, you could be Sunni and black. You could be an NOI and black. Hey, what time are you been at the corner? We've got a problem at the corner. And not looking at how it's established identity for our brothers and sisters who came in the 60s. This thing has been made easy for you in a lot of regards because the heavy lifting has been done. And when you come in the 60s and the 70s, you have freedom of religion. You have protection of the law. We didn't have that. And yet you've been able to produce this massive uh, representation of work, you know, building hospitals. And the first Islamic schools are, you know, Sister Claire Muhammad schools. Why? Because... Not because we're black, it's because the quality of education that we see in these schools are not good. That is the Miss Jones I talked to you about, about the sixth grade. That is understanding, hey, man, just because they give it to you doesn't mean it's good. And I think I think this, we don't have time to... Uh, yeah, yeah, that, I, I ran. The, sorry, sorry. No, bro. no, no. I, I think that I was going to comment on the, the community of Imam Warthin Muhammad is... I've heard they said that was probably one of the biggest mass conversions to yes, orthodoxy yes, in Islam yes, was yes. his community, which is massive. And I think it's a fascinating piece of history, really, that we probably need to certainly in the UK, we don't know enough about. So um, so I think that's, you know, I I wonder then how that, going back to Allah made me funny, I guess, how did that kind of translate into how you set it up? Because you wanted to make it clean in terms of profanity well i was a clean i was a clean comedian before Allah made me funny that's that's what i think people need to know okay i was a clean comedian before Allah made me funny for years but to attract that that audience then it was you know i mean i've 
it know, just, I've seen Muslims aligns, attend. They, they don't laugh at these events. So they go, <laughs> certainly not in the early days. Like you would, we would host like uh, the sheed, you know, artists. Yeah, people just, just sit there. You stayed the like, comedian. You know, I remember doing hard? the first show, two thousand four, in Bradford, and um, <clears throat> they did the sheet. They introduced me. When I didn't know it was Bradistan or whatever. So I got no idea. I'm tired. They made us drive there straight off the plane. I mean, when these, you know, this Islamic Society of Britain shout out, but they're really cheap. Okay. Um, so I show up. You know, you're the comedian. You start realizing these people have never seen a black man with a microphone that wasn't a scholar, or somehow attached to Islamic scholarship. And the only ones were Imam Siraj Wahaj. And Imam Zaid Shakar. Yeah. And there I am in front of these people. And I remember I'm looking at them, looking at me, looking at me. Here's my first joke. I said, I'd like to do an impression of you looking at me. (laughs) (laughs) And then it happens. It's like, I'm going to talk to you. And I'm going to be really, really proficient and strategic in understanding that I understand your your sensibilities. And in a way, I I'm not asking you to be black, and you're not, and I'm damn sure not going to be Pakistani Indian. I said, but I'm going to deliver on these things because I had a game plan. Uh, going back to, uh, I say W. Muhammad. Let's let's go further. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad had a game plan. And then I'm standing there right there, and I'm like, this is the game plan. Don't don't fumble the ball. Get up and deliver. And once the laughter started going, and they were like, oh, oh, oh. It's like, okay, now we, we, we've established a new identity, a new relationship. And by the end of the tour, by the time we got to Glasgow, it was the last show, 2004. By the end of the tour, because you didn't really have apps, you didn't, you yep. didn't have, you had internet, but you didn't have apps. Uh, you have social media, so if people are calling about the tour, so when I got to Glasgow, the greatest show that happens in Glasgow is not uh, recorded, but um, it's yeah. people. You know, I, I always say uh, Glasgow. You know, they they got halal gangsters up here, right? <laughs> um, by the time I was emceeing the show, I was supposed to be emceeing, but you know, I'm getting ready to get going in front of it. They find Mackie, whatever, and the whole people are like, you know, I can't do the Scottish accent, but they're like, breach, 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 breach. It was like, it was crazy. And everybody's like, yo, I was like, I, I think I did my job. Yeah, brilliant. It's like, I think brilliant. I did my job. <laughs> Take us to your next gym. Oh, that's an easy one, man. My grandfather. Uh, never have an argument with a man that's smoking a cigarette while pumping his own gas. <laughs> Elaborate on that one. Um, pick your battles, man. Pick your battles. Mm-hmm. He says some people are just predisposed to just argue. They're not innovators. They're not critical thinkers. Yeah, they need you to distract to distract them from the fact that they're not innovators and critical thinkers. And think about it, man. Would you really argue with a guy who's smoking a cigarette, pumping gas? Some people will be like, "Brother, please, no, no, hey, I'll be about fifty yards away. You keep on doing what you're doing." Yeah. 
And that is the art of discernment. It's wisdom, isn't it? It's yeah. discernment. Yeah. And you got to understand discernment. Yeah. Even in our Muslim community, yeah. I have people I love, but I've had to walk away. Yeah. Because the ideas are not so much are they feasible, but they're not realistic in the context of what we need. Yeah. I'd love to hear your thoughts because, you know, from that those early days, you know, in 2000, the early 2000s, you know, 20 years, the the presence of Muslim comedians has kind of flourished, particularly in the last few years, sure. especially with YouTube, Netflix. Sure. sure. Some of the people that are on your tours, sure. you know, are, are, are massive in terms of fame and popularity. And, you know, so you have, you know, these... Um, stand-up specials on Netflix, sure. they're in Hollywood, they're script writing, they're sure. all doing that. So you've got a whole range of comedians, you know, you've got obviously people like Dave Chappelle, right, at the kind of the seniority. Yeah, he's at top of the food chain. You've got Muammar, you've got Hassan Minhaj, you've got Rami Yusuf, all of these kind of, who are talking about their Muslim identity. But are they? And How are they well, talking I'm, about that's their Muslim That's what I'm going to come on to. So, the, you know, they're identifying as Muslims and they're also in that space. So, I mean, so as somebody, I'm not. I'm a doctor. I'm not a creative person. I got you. I got you. Is where where are those kind of boundaries between your faith, profanity? I think they're blurred. Con content. I think they're also blurred. Having that space as a we creative. We were talking. To, we were talking today about a situation where I'm with um I'm with a younger group of comedians. And, you know, this young group of comedians is talking about, you know, the, <laughs> the girlfriends and what they do with their girlfriends. And I, we thought about moving in together and not telling the family. And I'm like, yeah, I'm dated. Um, but we didn't do that. We didn't do that when I came up. You know what I mean? That's not a conversation that you had. Some of the stuff that you see on TV, I would have... Old guys chin checking me when I came to the masjid. You know, Jim, what, number three or four? Whitney Houston had it. She was doing an interview, I think, with Barbara Walters. Barbara Walters says, ask her, Whitney, does success change you? She goes, no, fame changes you. Hmm. Success doesn't change you. Fame changes you. Why? Because you can always be successful and you can fail. You can't fail at fame. If you fail at fame, it's a whole different thing. It's a whole different type of dynamic and, and a sense of urgency. You know, what is fame? I've watched guys who used to be famous hang out with famous guys hoping to get famous again. You know, success is that old man, right? Islam is hard work. Yeah, you never start working, but, you know, but people make sacrifices. I won't say who, what, where, and when, but people make sacrifices. Because the fame is... More so than the notoriety. The fame is no so more so than the respect. There are people who are famous. I don't respect them. We don't respect them. But do you think when these, obviously we won't name individuals, etc. Of course. Do you, if some people will accuse them of compromising on some of their values, sure. etc. Do you me, think they're me. doing that knowingly to get to a certain position Absolutely. and influence? Or do they? Absolutely, bro. Listen, let me, what? Let me, let me give you a story. People say, preach miles, how come you're not, uh, you know, you don't have the Netflix special? And how you, you know, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you facts. I'm going to give you game. I had my shot. 
years ago, I was writing on a George Lopez show. Daryl Hammond was on Saturday Night Live. Daryl Hammond loved me. Loved me so much that he introduced me to his agent at Brillstein Gray. Brillstein Gray was huge. They produced The Sopranos, Gary Shandling. I literally go into a meeting. This is one of those meetings that changes your life. And the guy said, hey, I love everything you do. I love your stand-up, your writing, da-da-da, giving them scripts. And he's like, yo, I can see you as a as a consulting producer on this particular show. It's $15,000 a week. And I'm like, yo, you know it's four weeks in a month, right? <laughs> <laughs> and we're going, and it's going well. And he goes, let me ask you a question. Yeah, He goes, you're Muslim. I'm like, yeah. I got throughout his name. His name is Jeff Chetty. And he goes, you're Muslim. I'm like, yeah. He goes, so, you know, let me just do a hypothetical. If I needed you to, you know, kind of bend the rules so we could make this money. Would that be a problem? And me, ideally, thinking, I go, yeah, that's a problem. That is a problem. I said, because who says we got to bend the rules? Why can't we just be better in that situation? Why do we have to bend the rules? Why do I have to do this? And it's a, it, you know, there's an interview with Dave Chappelle. He talks about putting on a dress. I'm dealing with the guy saying, if I need you to put on a dress, will you put on a dress? This is years before Dave. Did. And I'm like, yo, this, yeah, that is a problem. I'm like, because this is my religion. This is what I believe. And he goes, ah, ah. He goes, thanks for coming. Mm-hmm. The meeting was over. End of discussion. End of discussion. End of discussion. It's over. Mm. I'm like, huh? <laughs> I wasn't long enough. I wasn't there long enough to get my parking validated, bro. Yeah. <laughs> and you walk out and I'm go, that old man was right. There's no burning bushes, man. There's no burning bushes. So the people that have achieved that fame, have they had to make, you know, because, because, as an outsider, I'm gonna say this. I'm gonna say a lot of those best. Yeah, I'm not gonna speak. Of course, I know things. Um, I, and you can have the best information about what happened. I've been front and center for a lot of this stuff to happen. Yeah, you know. But in the end, you know, Allah makes choices. You know, Allah is the best planners. Maybe it's meant for me not to see. Maybe it's meant for me to see that to go. You know what? We need to keep pushing this way. Mm. Maybe it's okay that. When the show is over, they leave in a limousine and, and you got to book an Uber. Maybe that's okay. Mm. You know, because this thing is not over. Remember, you know, talent is the ability to hit things that other people can't hit. Genius is the ability to hit things that people can't see. You know what, man? You can't see your, you can't see the hereafter. Mm. You can't see paradise. You can't see your deeds. Yeah. Listen, bro, you can't see your deeds. And that's here in this life. You can't see your deeds. What is a deed? A good deed yeah. that it made somebody feel better? You it, it, you can't even categorize it. I mean, that's how crazy it gets. And I'm like, when you start thinking like that, I'm like, well, maybe I need to see that. I know guys who made money back in the day and homeless, locked up, drugged yeah. out. I'm like, maybe I need to see. Yeah. You know, they lost their families. I am a star, but you lost your family. Your kids don't talk to you. I mean, this is real talk. So, you know, maybe you need to see that. Maybe Whitney Houston was right. Yeah. Success doesn't change you. Yeah. Fame changes. I've been extremely successful. All praises due to Allah. You know, but what happens when you do become famous? Yeah. You start making exceptions. What what happens? And, you know, it bears out. Yeah. It, it does bear out. Do you think some people 
that have become famous have kind of started to avoid you or cut you off in the sense that they don't want to keep contact with somebody I w- that, I is, say, that is going actually I've gone a different way I've not chosen because I think what people forget is one is that you're one of the trailblazers for the Muslim com- you know well comedians. you know what when you go to those and you're at that cusp you're in you know, but when LA, you go to these people there. you can't say oh, I was hanging out with him you can't go to the people go that's the dude that's the dude we told uh, 14 years ago 15 years ago we told him bye but you can't possibly hang out with that guy <clears throat> And even in, you know, uh, I want to say, you know, real talk. In America, white supremacy, we say the white man has been trying to figure out a way to get rid of black folk for years. He hasn't figured out that narrative yet. So why would you want to hang around the guy? The, the the guy that's trying to give you everything and he goes you know you know him you damn near gotta say no I, I don't know him you know cause he's gonna be suspicious of you if you hanging out with him come come you might give me the same answer that he gave me several years ago you can't get rid you can't get rid of these things there's certain things Allah puts in, in place can't get rid of listen. Let me tell you something. As a human, then how? I mean, that must hurt though in terms of um, how you cope. The with imam that. told me, he said, "Hey man, he said in the end you you're gonna do everything you can for your people. He said in the end they ain't gonna do nothing for you. And he said get he said get used to it. So don't you don't expect anything. He said, of anyone, he said get used to it. Yeah. He said hey." Let me tell you something. In Islam, as a convert, you haven't had your heart broken as a Muslim in this religion until a Muslim breaks it. Yeah. And so <laughs> that, and that for, you know, I was like, yo, man, I, I understand. I've seen the game. You know, sometimes they'll go, I'm not that guy. I'm this guy. I'm definitely not that guy. Yeah, but we, we, we were tight. We were family. And I'm like, okay. You know, but what did we used to say? We were all successful together. But when it became an issue for fame, right? Uh, pimps used to say uh, people act funny for the money and strange for the change. And that's what fame is. Act funny for the money and strange for the change. But I guess you can sleep with sleep better at night and be content that you've held on to your values and done what you felt is the right thing. And the, f- the cool part is... Because the, the fame he, and success... He, well, here's the cool part, man. It doesn't require you to be perfect. It requires you to be perfect. It requires you to be present. Okay? And as a man, as a man from, from where I come from, from my culture, from what I've seen, and the people who made sacrifices for me, yo, man, I, I owe people. I owe a Dick Gregory. I've seen Dick Gregory lose it all. Yeah, I read his book, and I... I you know, people don't know Dick Gregory. When he went all out in the civil rights movement for people, he stopped doing stand-up. He lost multi-million dollars worth of gigs and bookings to the point that he wouldn't do gigs and Bill Cosby would do the gig and give him the money. He'd take the money. You know, he was dead. He had kids. He had a wife. But he believed. I'm like... You know, and he told me these things. I'm like, yo, I haven't got to that point, but I've I've been to that point where phone's not ringing for gigs. 
you know, because people want a certain type of comedian. You know, we don't want the black guy. We want the Pakistani guy that can do the black stuff. You know, mm. it was weird, you know. And it's like, okay, when they don't need you, it puts you aside. Okay. Some of the tours are the same same okay. way, but, you know, I believe, and like I said, you know, I believe that the genius part, you yeah. lean you lean to the genius part in the target, and that's the thing that's been yeah. special, alhamdulillah, because yeah. all that made me funny is hitting a target that people can't see. Yeah. And so we're still trying to hit the target. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you for your honesty as well, because I think it is a, it's an area that um, only when you've lived through it and you've dealt with it and when you've been there from the beginning, you know, I think that's where, you know, you develop that experience and that insight. No, you're 100% right, man. I, let, me tell you, let me tell you something, bro. I love my Arab, Pakistani, Indian, Bangladeshi brothers, because you know, they love Allah. And so my energy is a different kind of energy. I'm going to hug you like the nation brother. You know, nation brother, we may have a little bit more history, but I'm going to hug you. You know why? Because we can make new history. We can do different things. Yeah. And sometimes the energy, it, it can be too much. It can be too much. I've seen it before. Folks are not used, used to that energy. And sometimes it's cultural. And what, whatever happened in colonization back in Pakistan and India, you know, uh, and that's real talk. You know, but I'm looking at this uh, religion as I, as I live and breathe. I'm like, man, this is a liberating religion. And it's like, it's not to be played with. This is not a religion for punks. This is not a religion for the weak, man. And that's the way we carried it. That's the way it was presented to me. I would not be in Islam today if it was presented to me as something of a weak option. That it was not going to elevate me and challenge me. That the old guy that opened the door and said, there ain't going to be no burning bushes. Somehow I go, that's amazing. Yeah. And it sticks with you decades later. Absolutely, so. brother. Absolutely. <laughs> and what's your next gem? My next gem is uh, uh, my, my big brother who actually helped me come to Islam. May Allah be pleased with me. He passed in, uh, during COVID, during 2020. And uh, <laughs> um, I was working. I wasn't. I was trying to figure out what I want to do as a Muslim. And I took a job at a uh, at a recreation center, Reston, Virginia, recreation center, uh, Reston Community Center. And uh, I was a young guy there, and I was struggling, trying to figure out programs. I got myself into a job. I got it, but I was in over my head. And uh, he walked up. He's like, brother, if there's anything I could do for you. And he had that Muslim glow. You know, black man, if there's anything I can do for you, man, you call me. I'm your brother. Don't you be out here. You call me. And I called him. I had an event that required, like, footballs and basketballs and, and like, volleyballs. And uh, in the budget, the guy stole the money, said it was none of that. And I had a program that required that. And I called him up. I was like, hey, Brother Reggie, uh, man, I, I got this program. I don't have any balls, any basketballs, footballs, da da da. And he's like, man, I got you. I'll, I'll drop it by tomorrow. Reggie <laughs> comes over the next day uh, trying to help me out. And he uh, he has this big bag, you know, and he throws it down. He goes, there you go, right there. And I, I, look, uh, I look in the bag, and it's 
basketballs and footballs and everything I asked for. The only problem is they're all flat. <laughs> and I'm like, Big Brother, um, these um these 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 are all flat. And he looks at me, he goes, uh, he goes, uh, you asked he said, uh you he said, you say you needed balls, you didn't say you needed air. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Which is uh when you ask for something, know what you're asking for. Know what you're asking for. Yeah. So as we come towards the end of our interview, preacher Moses yes, and and yeah, I'm, I'm, I've learned so much from just our conversation, so thank you for that. Um, what do you think are s- some of the biggest sacrifices you've had to make in this journey? To get to where you have been, to, you know, that grind and that struggle. Um, what, what have you had to sacrifice over the years? Rage. I had to sacrifice rage. Um, I had to replace rage with uh, love and and hope, and uh, model it after uh, Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, a man I never saw. You understand? I had to believe in that that the target you nobody could see. I can't see him. I can read books about it and 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 hadith and. Sarah and all that, but I, I never met the man, and it becomes this leap of faith. Like my father said, "Be strong," but I could look at when he was strong. I I I can't do this, and it was like that's when you know your religion is real, said because I'm I'm going to suspend all this reality around me, and I'm going to put all this currency into this guy I never saw before. Mm-hmm. He wasn't black. He wasn't he wasn't nation. He was he. He's the first Muslim, bro. And I'm like, can you imagine the weight of being the first one of a religion? And when you start thinking about that, you're realizing that, man, your problems are small, uh, minute, damn near irrelevant. That a blueprint is out there that you're never going to get close to. Your calling is never going to be that deep that you got to do that. That you have to, and watching like Muhammad Ali, you know, watching Muhammad Ali, he's the greatest. But even Muhammad Ali said, I'm not that great. And he used to talk about, I told people I was the greatest. He said, I wasn't the greatest. He said, I needed people to see the greatest in them. Mm. Had a great Muhammad Ali story. Maybe we can close on that. Yeah. Um, I moved out to California to pursue my dream as a comedian. Uh, I got all kind of problems going out there. I told my truck. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm getting out there. Man. I'm in bad shape. Uh, I show up to a gig. I'm double booked. They're about to fire me. I'm like, <laughs> I need. in fact, uh, the guy's name was Dave Coulier from uh, Full House. And he's like, no, we're going to keep both comedians. He paid my salary. Shout out to Dave Coulier. And uh, it's not going well. But I get a job teaching. Yeah, I go back to teaching. And I'm going to do comedy when I'm not teaching. So teaching in the day, comedy at night. It's not going well. And I open up a paper. It's called the OC. It's called the Weekend Paper, whatever. LA Weekly, that's what it was. And I saw that Muhammad Ali was coming, right? And uh, he was doing a signing session. And I perk up like, 
oh snap it's Muhammad Ali I snap out of this depression like it's Muhammad Ali yo and I went to go see him I get there early there's a guy there with these paintings and uh, we're the first ones there like I'm there like two hours early in line you know and uh, we spark up a conversation ironically he winds up being Muslim he's like I make these paintings when the champ comes to town I present them to the champ and he's telling me everything about Muhammad Ali about how long they've known each other relationship you know health issues and all that he's like you might not come if you're not feeling well I'm like oh snap you know we're talking and then Muhammad Ali shows up and uh, it's like wow yo, you know and he's like um all right, young fella, grab the end of that painting. I'm like, no, nah, you can handle it. He's like, no, stupid. He's he's giving me he's giving me a lob. You know, he's like, yo, this is the alley oop. I'm trying to hook you up. I'm so I'm so freaking stupid. I'm like, oh yo, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I get there. And uh this is the power of Allah with Muhammad Ali, right? We've been waiting for a while, and I'm thinking, oh, he's just healthy. He he's held up people, you know why? He has kids around him, and he's doing magic tricks for the kids. Hello. He's doing a magic show for the kids. You got a line of people around the block in, 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 in Ventura Valley. I'm to see him, and he's holding him up. He's doing, look, the kids ain't paying no money for autographs. He's doing tricks. like, uh, And I'm like, is he doing tricks? You know what I'm saying? Is that the champ doing tricks? Mr. You know, he's doing sleight of hand. The kids, oh, all right. His guy's like, oh, Muhammad. Hey, what's happening, baby? As-salamu alaykum. You know, black folk. As-salamu alaykum, baby. You know, he's like, make it over here. And they hug and everything. The guy gives me the assist. Yo, Muhammad, this is a young brother, man. He's a teacher. He's a comedian, man, you know. And, uh, you know, he, and Muhammad Ali looks at me because I don't know how you're a teacher. You look like a kid. Uh, you know, he's busting my hump. And I'm like, I don't know. And, you know, he's like, yeah, this is he a Muslim, too. Muhammad, he Muslim. And he looks at me. He goes, you're a Muslim, too. He's a Muslim, too. He's like, oh, I got to give him the greeting. Snap. Like, As-salamu alaykum. And just out of sheer uh, being in his presence, I go, Muhammad Ali, you're the greatest. And he goes, I know. <laughs> Then he looks at me, he goes, yeah. He says, give me a dollar. And I give him a dollar, right? And he takes the dollar and he rips it up and he makes it disappear. And I'm like, that's a wonderful trick. But I'm a school teacher. I need that dollar. I'm broke. I'm in between checks, mom. And he looks at me like, oh, you want your money back? I'm like, yeah. And he reaches behind my ear and he gives me a 50 cent piece. He goes, that's your dollar after taxes. (laughs) Now, fast forward. I'll show you how it all connects. I'm at an event for Bayan Islamic Graduate School. And they're talking about getting a master's. I wind up getting a master's in Islamic education. That's not the deal, though. I wind up getting a master's in Islamic education. It never happens because I get the Muhammad Ali Leadership Award. So I'm not going to get this award. It's not looking good. Muhammad Ali's wife, Lonnie, they're pitching me to her, and, she's, and they're like, well, tell me about this young man, da 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 And she goes, and they go, well, he's a comedian. And she goes, oh, Muhammad loved comedy so much. He loved comedians. He loved the laugh. I wind up getting the scholarship. Oh. So we're on a boat trip, and she comes out to meet the awardees for the scholarships. And I'm doing stand-up, and I tell her about that, that joke. I tell her about that Muhammad Ali thing, and she's just falling out laughing. And at the end, I go, Miss Miss Ali. She goes, Yes. I go, 
did you enjoy the story? She goes, yes. I said, I'm good. Because I said, alhamdulillah. I said, listen, um, business aside, your husband still owes me 50 cents. <laughs> <laughs> Not forgotten. Is it? <laughs> yeah. And she goes, I'll write you a check. And I was like, all right. But my point is, look at the generosity of this man who uh, in 1997 is doing magic tricks. In 2021, I'm getting a graduate degree in Islamic education. Still under the track of being an educator and a teacher, still doing comedy. Yeah, I mean, listen, man, that's the thing you can't see. And finally, if you were to meet the young preacher Moss, the young, a 20-year-old, 18-year-old preacher Moss, what would you say to him if you were to bump into him now? I think I would tell him this is my last gym. I said, young fella, whatever you go through, good, bad, and different, hard times, good times, struggle, suffering, life, death. The gym I tell everybody is this, and you've heard it before. Allah's God, keep it simple. Hmm. That's it. So, Preacher Boss, final questions. You're on this desert island. Um, and you can take a book with you, apart from the Quran. Mm -hmm. What book would you take that would keep you company on this desert island? I might take Message to the Black Man by the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. Music, I would take John Coltrane, Love Supreme. Fantastic. Yeah. And you can take a luxury item uh, on the desert island that maybe is a little comfort or reminds you of home or something like that. What luxury item would you take? Just a picture of my family, man. That's about it. Brilliant. Jazakallah khair. So, Preacher Moss, thank you so much for your time. Jazakallah khair. Thank you so much pleasure. for having me, brother. I hope I uh, did well on the podcast. And it was amazing. So hopefully much. some people get some information out of it. And uh, like I said, uh, if, yeah. it, if it's good, it's from a lot. If it's, if it's bad, it's, it's from my own nafs. And I'll just try to do better. Jazakallah khair. All the best. And may Allah continue to give you strength. and. I mean, um, the steadfastness I mean, to continue and the excellent work that you're doing and continuing to open up, you know, trailblaze and open up the opportunities for Inshallah, not just man. other. And you keep doing what you're doing, Doc. You keep doing what you're doing. You you make sure that this thing he's going, he's going. I want you to have as many episodes of this as I have of the Shadow Show. Yeah, no, I noticed how many episodes are you showing? Well, over 800, man. 800. Because you uh, during COVID, I saw you week on week. Uh, you know what it is, bro? It's, uh, it's, it's what that old man say is work, man. Let me tell you something. You know, we'll, we'll wrap here. Yeah. Islam for the African American totally realigns realigns the whole idea of work ethos because you spent generations working for somebody else. Think about that. Through slavery, you wound up working through everybody else. Jim Crow, you work through everybody else. Segregation, you work through everybody else. Somebody gives you this religion and goes, listen, despite everything you earn, you can work for yourself. You can work for Allah. And that work for Allah is work for yourself. That's why you hear the tune from Allah Muhammad said, you got to do for self. That's how deep that was. You got to do for self. You know, that's in the 30s. 
in, in, in the 40s and the 50s. Nobody even thought black people could think back then. But now you're telling He said, where's that coming from? And the man says, Allah told me you got to do for self. Man, that's a powerful thing. On that message. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All the best and keep us all in your du'as, inshallah. Likewise. Keep me in your du'as as well, my brother. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. Rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.